the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. This is a three-part podcast on the World War II flying and prisoner of war history of Flight Lieutenant Robert Neil Lindsay. Neil flew with Bomber Command and, after being shot down, was a prisoner of war in Germany. The story in the recordings by Neil Lindsay in this particular podcast, and all three of them, were told to Air Vice Marshal Peter Scully, retired on the 5th of December in 1996. Neil Lindsay was born in 1917 in Melbourne. He joined the RAAF and it was an enormous change for Neil as prior to enlisting in December 1940, it completed an agricultural degree and was working as a jackaroo on Corona Station, which is northwest of Longreach in Queensland. He completed an observer's course before embarking for Edmonton in Canada in March of 1941. It was there he joined others training under the Empire Training Scheme. He completed various courses as a member of Number 2 Air Observer School and left Canada the following September for the United Kingdom. He then had various postings, including Number 14 Officer Training Unit and 83 Squadron, before he finally arrived at 106 Lancaster Squadron on the 8th of October 1942. Now, at the time, Guy Gibson was the commanding officer. Wing Commander Guy Penrose Gibson, VC, DSO and Bar, DFC and Bar, was a distinguished bomber pilot in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. At 18.59 hours on the night of 12.13 of March in 1943, Lancaster R5749 took off from Syrston, detailed to bomb Essen, Germany. Nothing was heard from the aircraft after it took off and it failed to return to base. The aircraft had been shot down in the target area and six of the crew members had been killed and Neil taken prisoner. Neil was listed as an air bomber for the mission. After his release on the 15th of April 1945, he gave a statement to authorities who were trying to piece together the experiences of POWs. Well, in part of that statement, he said, and I quote, The aircraft exploded at 20,000 feet after the bombing run was completed. It was hit by flak about five minutes previously when passing over Dorston, and there were no outward signs of damage after a quick check by the engineer and the pilot. I was the only one hit, and that was in the legs. Well, after the bomb run, everything seemed all right. Then there was a bright yellow flash in my face, and the next thing I can recall was that I was sailing through the air. I pulled my parachute cord and landed in Essen, where I was picked up by the Germans, and they told me that the others had been killed in the crash. Neil's records note that he was firstly at Slambertus Krakenhaus Essen from the 12th of March to the 27th of March 1943, and it was there he was treated for his injuries. Subsequently, he was moved to Dulag Frankfurt, Luft Heilokruger, Luft 3 Sagen, and Malag Mileg. Luft 3 Sagen was famous for escaping activities, unlike other camps where escaping was a minority activity. In the 22 months after the camp opened, the Germans had logged 262 escape attempts, most of which had failed. 
Well, Neil arrived at Starleg Luft 3 on the 18th of March 1944, which was just days before the notorious Great Escape on the 24th of March. He wasn't part of the escape, owing to his relative late arrival at the prison and the continuing effects from the wounds that he suffered when his Lancaster had crashed. On the night of the 24th of March in 1944, 76 Allied prisoners of Stalag Luft 3 German prison camp in Sagan, which was 100 miles southeast of Berlin, escaped through a tunnel that they had affectionately called Harry. Within days, most were recaptured. Well, an outraged Adolf Hitler had 50 of them shot, an appalling abrogation of the Geneva Convention to which Germany was a signatory. 23 were re-incarcerated and only three made it all the way to freedom. A Dutchman and two Norwegians, all flyers with the British Royal Air Force. Five of the murdered prisoners were nominally Australian, although only three actually wore RAAF uniforms. Well, for Neil, Christmas in 1944 at Star Lake Luft was bitterly cold. Six inches of snow had fallen in the night, turning the camp into a white wonderland. The men had been saving tin cans and the like and flattening them to make decorations for the huts. The Messiah was performed by a choir of 80 with a full orchestra in the church theatre, which was situated in the centre of the compound. Food for Christmas was very scarce, as supplies had not been getting through, and then came a miracle. When a few days before Christmas, a batch of Red Cross parcels arrived with canned turkey, plum pudding, cigarettes, cigars, candles, and in the western compound, Santa, in a red and white suit, arrived to the sound of sleigh bells. Two men were dressed as reindeers, and Santa tossed bundles of mail to the POWs. Now, mail had been allowed to accumulate for some time, so Santa really did have gifts for everyone. It was one of the not-to-be-forgotten days at Sagan. All camps had talented men from musicians, actors, singers, and those that taught classes in anything from theology, Latin through to history, and a whole host of other things. The men were able to sit for exams, which gained many of them entry into higher education when they finally returned home. After his release in April 1945, Neil spent two weeks in hospital before boarding his ship and on the 8th of August, bound for Australia, arriving home a month later. He was discharged from the RAAF on the 7th of January 1946. After discharge, he actually returned to the United Kingdom. There is a record of the questionnaire he, as with all POWs, answered after their return to Australia, lodged at the National Archives of Australia, and it makes very interesting reading. Neil had married Joan Winifred Bardwell in Oakham, Rutland, in April of 1942. He and Joan came back to Australia in September 1950, travelling on the Himalaya with their two daughters, Margaret Ann and Joanna May. Sadly, Neil passed away in January of 2001, predeceased by Joan the previous December. His name appears on the magnificent POW memorial at Ballarat in Victoria. Now, in this three-part podcast, Neil personally relates his story. The sound quality is a little poor, however, it is listenable to, and it is a significant part of Australian history, and it deserves your time to listen. In part one of this series, Neil will briefly talk about his early adult life, his training days in Australia in preparation for the war against Adolf Hitler, his adventures in Canada for aircrew training, and his final very intense preparations in the UK before starting flying. And he says, we went straight from our training unit to Lancaster's. 
I went on to 83 Squadron, where I did my first three operations as a navigator and Bob Aimer, and it seemed to cope okay. In 1940, I was a jackaroo on Corona Sheep Station out in Western Queensland when I received a reply from the RAAF for my application to join the Air Force and to report to Rockhampton for an interview. At Corona Station, which was 365,000 acres in area and carrying 75,000 merino sheep, was in the middle of shearing. We were extremely busy, working 16 hours a day, and we were coping with a particularly bad blowfly strike problem. It was with a certain amount of misgivings that I approached the station manager, asking for a few days off to go to Rockhampton for my interview. He was a taciturn bloke of the old mould and said, No man's indispensable. You can go. I couldn't get off the station property quick enough and caught the mail bus to Longreach, which was 70 miles away and the train to Rockhampton, which was a further 500 miles down the line. On the 10th of May, I was sworn in to the sound from the local radio of the news that the Germans were dropping parachutists in Belgium. Seven months later, on the 6th of December, I was called up to become part of nine course observers. After initial training at Bradfield Park, New South Wales, we left Australia on the 21st of the 3rd, 1941, on the Royal Mail steamer Arangi, with the nine course observers and several other aircrew. On our journey across the Tasman Sea, we were escorted by a cruiser. We filled in our time with lectures, PT, and a ship's concert, etc. Halfway across the Tasman, we were met by another escort from New Zealand and experienced two Mondays when we crossed the international date line and then calling in at Suva, Fiji. At the dockside, there were stacks of bananas, which the natives threw to us as the ship pulled out. Arrived in Canada via Vancouver Island and caught the Canadian National Railway train to Redmond. It was springtime in the Rockies with some marvellous scenery and arrived at number two Air Observers Training School, Edmonton, Alberta, on the 18th of April 1941. We were lined up and lectured by a colourful, verbose flight sergeant of the Royal Canadian Air Force. He told us in no uncertain terms if we didn't play ball with him, he wouldn't play ball with us our first introduction to Canadian colloquialism. We started studying in earnest and flew with the Canadian Airways under the Royal Canadian Air Force supervision and we were supposed to learn in three months that which usually took about 18 months. The aircraft used were Avro Anson's being a fabric covered aircraft and had a strong smell of dope. As navigators on these exercises always flew in pairs one had to sit next to the pilot on takeoff and wind up the undercut by hand a very tedious task. Instructions relating to course were passed to the pilot on a piece of paper. Exercises were two and a half to three and a half hours of duration, covering pinpointing, finding wind velocity, cross-country navigation, air plots, night flying, photography and interception. The weather varied greatly to mostly fine to flying in dust storms. Railways were always a great help as we could follow them and at the sidings they could have tall grain silos which the name of the silo on the side, thus enabling us to pinpoint our position. After 60 and a half hours of day flying and 5 hours 20 night flying hours, we finished our course at the Air Observer School Edmonton and travelled to number two bombing and gunnery school Mossbank, Saskatchewan. Here we learnt all about the Vickers gas operator and Browning machine guns and about bomb aiming terminal velocities and doing many air exercises operating machine guns 
and bomb aiming. These amounted to nearly 24 hours flying time. All our bombing and gunnery was done in ferry battles. The bomb aimer's position was under the pilot with a course setting bomb site in front of him and this was behind the radiator control for the battle's engine which directed hot air onto the bomb aimer's face. Some of the pilots were ropey and gave the observers a rough time from the base to targets. One pilot, on returning to base, bounced the CA's car into the ditch and he was demoted from flight lieutenant to a corporal on the spot. On the 16th of August, we had a wings parade. We were presented with our observer's wings and sergeant stripes. After 23 hours at bombing and gunnery school, we went on to number one astro-navigational school at Rivers, Manitoba, which involved identifying stars in the northern hemisphere, flying by dead reckoning, using a bubble sextant, navigation exercises by the stars. Most exercises were two and a half to three and a half hours of duration. In a lot of the exercises we flew north and saw the, some wonderful displays by Aurora Borealis, the northern light. There was only one snag with taking star shots out of an Anson. You had to poke your head through an open hatch into the 170 mile per hour slipstream to take a star shot. Often we had to fly to 10,000 feet above the overcast and the temperature was eight degrees below freezing. In all, we had to take 50 day shots and 100 night shots and plot them all. In order to cope with the exercises on this course, we worked from nine o'clock in the morning till at least 10 o'clock at night. In all, I did 13 hours, 15 minutes daytime flying, 18 hours, 40 minutes night flying at rivers. After taking about three days to reach Halifax, taking time to explore Toronto, Quebec and Montreal, we had to, within 12 hours, embark and were part of a 40-ship convoy crossing the North Atlantic. We were broken up into various flights for defensive duties on the Hotchkiss AA gun, a Lewis gun and an oldest lamp and we all had to take turns at submarine watch. Some of the ships had hurricane fighters mounted on catapults for a defensive reason. Had my first experience of gut-wrenching fear one night when I was off submarine watch and was drinking a cup of hot cocoa and the escorting destroyers started dropping depth charges around an enemy submarine. I think fear of the unknown was the catalyst to this feeling. We arrived in UK about 8th of October 1941. From Belfast to Larne to Stranraer to Bournemouth in 24 hours and billeted in a hotel and the Germans sent a welcoming plane over and dropped three mines without doing much damage. Some of nine course observers were posted to number 14 operational training unit Cottesmore. We were billeted in some mansions belonging to the gentry. The countryside was very attractive, but the cold weather was setting in with rain and fog. Our first exercises were mainly navigational and flown in Ansons. Whilst at Cottesmore, we were posted to a satellite aerodrome, Saltby. This aerodrome was in the course of construction and conditions were primitive. We were billeted in Nissan huts, which were very cold, and as the countryside was covered in snow, at the local inn, Croston Carriol, the landlord used to sniff snuff, which he used to offer to the airmen. Not many of them liked it, as it was powdered tobacco. In Croston Carriol, we used to catch the bus for Melton Mowbray and Nottingham. The village lads used to try to get us to try out their homemade wine, which was made from herbs, various berries and vegetables. The brews were quite strong, and it didn't take many to make one light-headed. 
The bus used to stop at various villages on the road to Nottingham, and the farm labourers used to board and brought with them a strong smell of tweed, silage and sour milk. It was interesting to see Trent Bridge Cricket Ground and stay at the Black Boy Hotel where the Australian cricketers stayed during their tours of the UK. Having completed the first part of our OTU training, we were switched to Hamden Bombers. The Handley Page Hamden twin-engine bomber was a stress-skinned monoplane, remarkable for its peculiar outline of wings and narrow fuselage. It had two Pegasus 18,000 horsepower engines and was armed with a fixed nose-browning machine gun and two fuselage turrets, one above the other. The upper turret was operated by the wireless operator, whilst the lower had a very cramped space and was operated by an air gunner. The rest of the crew were a pilot and observer. The latter navigated and did the bomb aiming. It was quite a tussle to get into the nose where the navigation and bombing was done. One had to don heavy flying suits because of cold, as well as a parachute harness, which seemed to catch everything, and then and lug a parachute and navigation equipment to the nose. To start with, we did a number of bombing exercises and air firing, and later some navigational exercises. Navigation at night was easy, as we used beacons to find our position. These markers flashed out an identification letter, and we referred to their latitude and longitude on our charts to plot our positions. Day exercises were easy because there were so many features with which we could pinpoint ourselves, railways, woods, towns, etc. On one exercise, we had to simulate bombing of steelworks with an infrared camera, and we ran into dirty weather, and so we returned to base. When an aircraft just missed us in the circuit, I suggested to the pilot to turn on his nav lights. Unfortunately, he switched on his landing lights, which reflected on the cloud, and blinded him, and the aircraft went into a spin. As we were close to the ground, I decided to bail out, but the centrifugal force held me motionless, and all I could do was watch the altimeter go down and the airspeed go up. Suddenly, the pilot got control of the aircraft and pulled it out of the spin. The pilot said, why didn't you bail out when I told you to? When he didn't get a reply, he decided to try to pull the aircraft out of the spin, which fortunately he succeeded in doing. On one exercise with the Hamden, we were hopelessly lost due to extremely bad weather and we came across a town and I told the pilot to fly up the main street and if we could see a statue, the town was probably Leicester. Fortunately, the statue appeared so we set course back to base without any trouble. Another occasion we heard whirring noises which we immediately identified as barrage balloons. I recognised the place on the map and realised I had given the pilot a reciprocal course. So we did a 180 degree turn and returned safely back to base. I flew several exercises with this pilot, Sergeant A.L. MacDonald, and we eventually ended up as part of a crew on 106 Squadron. Having successfully completed our OTU training, I got married before being posted to number 83 squadron at Campton. At Cotsmoor, we flew 37 hours 50 minutes daylight and 26 hours 45 minutes night. On the whole, I had spent 186 hours and 5 minutes flying during training. At Scampton, 83 squadron was converting to the Lancaster 4 engine bomber, which turned out to be without exception, one of the finest bombers of the war.
The aircraft was developed from the Manchester, whose twin engines failed to produce the power required. So as an emergency measure, the aircraft was rapidly redesigned to take four engines. This proved to be a successful transformation. The four-engine aircraft's efficiency was most credible, both in performance and in the way in which it could be saddled with ever-increasing loads without breaking the camel's back. It is astonishing that so small an aircraft could so easily take the enormous 22,000-pound Grand Slam bomb, a weapon which no other aircraft in the world could carry at that time. The Lancaster far surpassed all other types of heavy bomber. Not only could it take heavier bomb loads, and not only was it easier to handle, it had fewer accidents and it had a lower casualty rates than other bombers. Scampton was a pre-war established station and had good brick buildings and we were quartered in the sergeants and mar married quarters. These were pairs of semi-detached houses with all household facilities and gave us some privacy. The squadron was just taking delivery of its Lancasters and the crews were eager to get them as they had been having a rough time with the Manchesters which were unreliable. Many hairy stories were told about shaky do's that air crew flying them had experienced. The general consensus of opinion was that they had the flying qualities of a brick. Conversion and training was carried out when aircraft were available and recently arrived aircrew were waiting to be crewed up. Ken Williams, another nine course observer who was a university lecturer before he joined up and had received his commission on the completion of training, crewed up with another pilot called Mackay. Pilot Officer Mackay had had the unfortunate experience of spending two days in a dinghy in the North Sea. After he had ditched his aircraft on a return flight from a bombing mission over enemy territory, he was henceforth nicknamed Dinghy. Misfortune seemed to follow Dinghy as one night on returning from a cross-country exercise in Hamden, he lost his propeller over Doncaster. However, Dinghy was once again equal to the occasion and brought the aircraft safely back to base. Shortly afterwards, Ken Williams asked me if I would like to go on a night flying test with him prior, prior to a mining operation that they were to do that night. As I was short of flying hours in a Lancaster, I decided to go. It was the practice in Bomber Command for crews to take their aircraft on a night flying test before an operation to see that all the equipment was functioning properly. This was generally done if one was to fly in somebody else's aircraft or the aircraft was just back from an overall. On this occasion we boarded the aircraft which looked and smelt new. My feelings were similar to a person driving a new car for the first time. However, about a third of the way down the runway there was a terrific rattling and vibration and the aircraft did a ground loop and with a certain amount of misgiving we managed to pull up safely. Cars seemed to be coming from all directions and after an inspection of the aircraft by the riggers and fitters everything appeared to be in order and the trouble was diagnosed as a tailwheel wobble. What caused it? I do not know but it was deemed to be in order to take off again for the night flying test. I declined this time and let Ken and Dinghy do their test without me. This they did without any further trouble. Ken again asked me if I would like to go with him on this operation as it was a straightforward operation and they only had to drop mines in front of a German convoy proceeding up the North Sea off the coast of Holland. 
Once again I disclined the feeling that one should not unnecessarily volunteer to go on hazardous missions. At the last moment, Ken, who had mislaid his gear, brought all my flying gear and charts. The takeoff was delayed on two occasions, and finally the aircraft made the rendezvous. But unfortunately, it was over the centre of the convoy. Naturally, the convoy opened fire, and Ken's aircraft received a direct hit and was seen to crash in flames into the North Sea. Ken Ridley and Ralph Warren with whom I was sharing the married quarters, were both in the operation and told me on their return about the events. They were both upset because if they had taken off at their original takeoff time, they would have dropped their mines in front of the convoy without any flak problems. They said Dingy's aircraft didn't have a chance as it was directly over the convoy when it received a direct hit and went straight into the drink. Before joining up, we were all very gullible to the news that was coming through, especially the news relating to the RAF's bombing of the railway yards in Ham and the pinpoint bombing of the oil depots and industrial factories. I'm sure if the Germans heard the same news, they would have smiled to themselves. However, I guess it kept the civilians' morale up. The nearer one got to the action, the more one realised the real results of this bombing Sure, they went to bomb Hamburg, but often only one aircraft in ten got within five miles of the target, and the percentage that would hit the aiming point would be extremely small. Naturally, this caused the RAF to look around for new means of improving their performances in relation to navigation to the target. A navigational aid called G had been worked out before the war. The principle of G is that the transmission stations, or two of them, a master and a slave station simultaneously transmit a radar pulse signal. The G apparatus in the aircraft measures the difference between the times at which the two signals are received and so indicates the difference between the aircraft's distance from one station and its distance from the other. This shows the navigator that the aircraft is somewhere on a certain line and this line is marked on a chart and prepared for use with the G apparatus. This was a normal Mercatus chart on which we plotted our courses. Theoretically, this should have made the navigator independent of any side of the ground and navigation by night less dependent on the weather than it had been before. If the apparatus worked as well as it was expected to do, it looked as if it would be unnecessary to carry out that long search for landmarks in the neighbourhood of the target, which was not only extremely dangerous, but also tended to prevent any effective concentration of attack. Unlike the various radio, not radar, devices and beams which had been in use before the command had any radar to aid navigation, the G stations could give a force of any size any required number of fixes. However, there were limitations to the use of G. These were the restricted range, which was up to 350 to 400 miles from the transmission stations. However, at this range, fixes could be obtained in the rural area. The main limitation was that G was vulnerable to jamming and reduced the range to about 100 miles. Like many new ideas, it was not a success on operations as it was on trials but it did improve results to a small degree on short-range targets in cloudy, hazy or moonless nights. Its big advantage when used 
was it reduced the time over the target areas, and this was vital in heavily defended the rural areas, which had up to 7,000 heavy ACAC guns for its defence. It could put up a frightening barrage. I recall when I was shut down and being held a prisoner in a cell and on the receiving end of a bombing attack on the Ruhr and viewing the attack from my cell window from a Luftwaffe aerodrome at Dortmund. The air was pockmarked bursting flak and it seemed impossible for an aircraft to penetrate the defences. The flak was that thick it gave ever credence to the RAF line. The flak was so heavy over the target area, I lowered my wheels and taxied over it and dropped my bombs. G also enabled a greater concentration of bomber stream, which meant saturating the defences and less time over the target. When returning to bait, especially under cloudy and hazy conditions, it enabled accurate navigation back to base. It was possible by setting the navigational coordinates of your base on the G set to home on them. The G-set also had a detonating device set in which would explode if the aircraft crashed. Being an independent radio aid, it increased accuracy of navigation near home bases and was especially helpful to damaged aircraft and tired crews and an advantage in perilous night landings. In 1940-41, more aircraft were lost over the UK returning from ops than over Germany. This device was very sensitive. On one occasion, whilst taxiing, the G-set exploded. The sides of the box puffed out and the screen turned black and clouds of smoke billowed from the insides. Contacting the control tower, we informed them of our predicament. We pulled off the taxi strip and shortly some technicians pulled up in a van and within a matter of minutes, the blown set was removed and the working model replaced. It only meant disconnecting the useless set and replacing it with a good one. The navigational officer of 83 Squadron received commendation for discovering of a faulty markings of the coordinates over the North Sea. The G-set was easy to train on as one could sit in front of it and fiddle with the coordinates and practice procedures. In bad weather of the late winter of 1942, many innovative methods of attack were used the use of dropping flares over target areas to identify them, the dropping of incendiaries for use as aiming marks, and other techniques called Wanganui's and Taranaki's. These techniques were tried out on the nights of 10 tenths cloud when the flares lit up at high altitudes and these flares were bombed to the height of 15 to 20,000 feet. A target indicating aircraft would drop a flare over the target area and at a specific height at a certain time. The following up aircraft also flying at a prescribed height with the preset bomb site would at the right time bomb this flare. This method required precise navigation as only small allowances would be made for the time errors. It was an eerie sight to see the flare light up with towering cumulonimbus clouds all around. The attacking aircraft felt very vulnerable being exposed by the light of the flare during the run-up to drop their bombs. There were occasional flak bursts which added variety to the pyrotechnic display. After routine navigational exercise at OTU, which often developed into beacon crawls at night and map reading during the days in uncomfortable hands with their course-setting bomb sites for drift, 
The new Lancaster, with their G navigation range and improved bombsite, were an exciting introduction to bombing operations. A new era was about to begin in bombing command, with a new commander fondly known as Butch Harris, and on the advent of a new high-performance four-engine bomber, with the introduction of the new navigation range called G. On a navigational exercise which took us from Scampton to St David's Head in Wales and a low-level leg from there to Holyhead and then back to base on a beautiful day and we flew, when we flew south to Bath and then turned west to St David's Head at the southwest corner of Wales, turning north from there towards Holyhead, the pilot flew the aircraft just above the surface of Cardigan Bay, sitting in the mid-upper turret which would rotate 360 degrees. One got a wonderful view. Looking astern, one could see the rear turret rotating with the four Brownings moving with it. On either side of the tail plane, there were two characteristic tail fins and rudders. Looking forward, one could see the canopy of the pilot's cockpit with the pilot at the controls and the flight engineer alongside him. Whilst to the left and right, were the wings with two Merlin Mark I engines suspended underneath. It was, reassure, it was a reassuring sight. We were cruising along at about 150 miles per hour indicated airspeed and it was a terrific feeling as we skimmed over the grassy surface of the sea to our next turning point. The grassy surfaces were tricky to fly over and it was difficult to judge one's height at the low level and, at, and on reaching Hollyhead we turned eastwards to base where we landed after a most satisfactory introduction to the Lancaster only to be marred by the unfortunate news about Ralph Warren whose pilot misjudged his height and flew into the sea with the loss of aircraft and all aboard. What a loss, Ralph was such a cheery phlegmatic person and what a way to lose a good friend. My first operation happened quite suddenly as I hadn't crewed up with a particular crew. I was playing in a cricket match and had just gone in to bat as an opening bat and had the misfortune to be out first ball. I leant forward to fend the first ball, missed it, lifted my back foot and the wicketkeeper had the bails up in a flash. I didn't have time to brood over my early dismissal as an airman arrived on a bicycle saying that Sergeant Lindsay was wanted in the flight office immediately. Arriving at the flight office, I was told I was to navigate for P.O. Raymond on ops that night and that we were to do a night flying test on our aircraft. P.O. Raymond was an Australian who had just reached, received his commission and a DFM after completing his first tour and appeared to be only about 20 years old. But his youthful looks belied his experience and once he got into the pilot seat where his previous operational tour and flying ability were quite apparent. After returning from our night flying test we went to briefing for the night's operation. The briefing room was fairly large and at one end there was a raised platform and on the wall behind the platform was a large covered map with a route to the target that we were to be briefed for. Alongside this map was a blackboard at the top of which was lettered the call sign of the aerodrome, the squadron number and the current date. Below this blackboard was marked in columns listing the bomb loads, aircraft with letter and registration number, crew, takeoff times, estimates and actual, estimated time over target, return time estimated and actual, the notes relating to each aircraft whether carrying a camera, 
or noting cancellation of trip because of some mechanical failure. Just off the platform there could be seen an easel with another blackboard on it. This could be the meteorological offer. On the other walls of the ops room there would be pictures of silhouettes of enemy aircraft and ships. On this occasion there were only a few aircraft going on ops. All the crews remained together just before the actual briefing time. There was a movement at the entrance and the chaps nearest the door rise to their feet. And the rest of the crews do likewise as this heralds the arrival of the briefing officer who happened to be the wing commander, the CO of the squadron. He is followed by intelligence officer, navigational officer, bombing leader and a civilian who is to brief us on the weather. The CO mounts the platform and tells the crews to be seated and pulls the covering off the map on the wall revealing the coloured ribbons leading from base to the mouth of the Garon River in the Bay of Biscay just northwest of the city of Bordeaux. Raymond mutters gardening which is echoed by the experienced operational crews. The CO picks up a pointer and placing it where the ribbons end saying as you have all probably guessed the object of this operation is to lay mines at the mouth of the Garonne. It will be a pretty straightforward exercise and you'll be able to use G until north of the Bay of Biscay and then you will make a landfall on an island in the mouth of the Garonne and from this landfall you will make a time run on set courses to drop your mines from specific heights. I understand the weather is good, in fact bright, moonlight, so keep an eye open for enemy fighters. However, group doesn't anticipate much trouble. The intelligence officer will fill you in on details regarding the area and the importance of the mission. The navigational officer will give you the route, the bombing leader details of your bomb load and bombing technique and the Met Officer will elaborate on the weather conditions. The best of luck, chaps. On standing aside, the Intelligent Officer explains that Bordeaux is used as a resting port for U-boat crews and also a receiving port for iron ore, which is brought from Spanish ports, unloaded at Bordeaux and then sent by rail across France to the steelworks of Germany in the Ruhr. The laying of mines in the sea lanes leading into the port will help in the blockading of this port. Any questions? The crews are more interested in the technical questions relating to the exercise, so there is no response. The navigational officer is next on the sand and in general terms refers to the route to be taken, the height to be flown. He also points out the visible landmarks and beacons that may be noticed en route and winds up by saying, that after the general briefing, if the navigators will come to him, he will give them their maps and charts for the journey. Also details for astro shots and if any navigator wished to take it to the sextant. The meteorological man was next and he involves a vertical cross plan of the route showing the clouds and their heights. As tonight the sky is practically cloudless, he gives the time of moonrise and moonset which indicates that we'll be over the target area when the moon is at its height. He also gives the wind speed and direction at the various heights and any possible changes. The navigators note that he ends his briefing with what weather conditions will be like on returning to England and whether there will be any mist over the base on arrival back at the aerodrome. In fact, we will be arriving back in full daylight, so there should not be much trouble. 
The date of this operation was the 28th of the 6th, 1942, and our takeoff time was 23.05, and our flying time for the operation was 5.50. The operation was carried out on a moonlight night with good visibility. The last G-fix was obtained near the Cherbourg Peninsula, and it was DR navigation to the mouth of the Gironde River, where the gardening mine layout was carried out, where a fix was made on an island off the Pont de Grave and the time run to our gardening point on the spot of release of the mines. There was some light flak in the distance, the only sign of enemy opposition. The return journey was slow but uneventful. The pilot decided to do a fuel economy test. Dawn was breaking as we crossed the English coach, which provided us with a clear run back to base. I did the navigation and bomb aiming of this trip, and our bomb load was five mines. The following night, on the 29th of the 6.42, we were briefed to bomb Bremen, with a bomb load consisting of one 4,000-pound bomb, commonly called a cookie, and eight small bomb containers carrying incendiaries. Time of takeoff for this flight was 23.45 hours, and our flying time was 5 hours 15 minutes. And P.O. Bremen was again captain and pilot. My personal recollection of this flight was that it was uneventful till we reached the target, which was easily identified in the moonlight. There was a lot of light flak, and as we bombed from about 10 to 12,000 feet, my first really experience of flak, especially light flak, its pretty circular hose piping appearance, lazily approaching, then zipping past the aircraft, did navigation and bomb aiming, and on the way back across the North Sea in the early morning light, it was reassuring to see the four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines chuffing away and knowing that if any two of them were capable of getting us back to base. Bomber Command War Diaries report on this night was that 250 aircraft, 108 Wellington, 64 Lancasters, 47 Stirlings and 34 Halifaxes were dispatched the first time that four-engine bombers provided more than half of the force on a major age. Eleven aircraft, four Stirlings, four Wellingtons and three Halifaxes were lost. The Bremen report shows that 48 houses were destroyed and 934 were damaged, mostly lightly, but the report devotes most of its space to details of extensive damage in the five war important industries including Fockwall Factory, an A.G. Wazer U-boat in construction yard and local gas works, a museum and a merchant navy college. Most damage was caused by fire. The casualties in Bremen aren't mentioned. On the night of 6th and 7th of August 1942, we were briefed to bomb Dewisburg. My pilot on this occasion was a flying officer, Hobson. The time of takeoff was five minutes to midnight, and our flying time was three hours, 45 minutes. Flying Officer Hob Hobson, my pilot and captain, had been shot up on the previous trip to Dewisburg, and when we crossed the enemy coast, he corkscrewed all the way to the target. This violent phase of action made me extremely airsy. After dropping our bombs, we set course for the enemy coast, and the pilot continued his violent corkscrewing. However, we arrived back to base, without further incident. There was flak and searchlight activity over the target. Our bomb load was one 4,000-pound bomb and eight SPC incendiaries. 
The Bombing Command War Diary report says that 216 aircraft, five types, five aircraft, two Halifaxes, two Sterlings and one Wellington were lost. Most of the bombers fell in open country west of the target. Hughes reports 18 buildings were destroyed, 66 seriously damaged and 24 people killed. This was the last of a series of five raids on Julesburg in just three weeks. Only one raid had resulted in significant industrial damage, but 212 houses were destroyed, 741 damaged, and 161 people were killed. Bomber Command lost 43 aircraft and 3.5% of the total of 1229 aircraft dispatched. However, my stay at 83 Squadron was about to come to an end. 83 Squadron had been selected for pathfinding duties and only experienced aircrew were selected. Not having a regular crew, I was posted to a conversion unit where I joined with my operational training unit pilot, Flight Sergeant A.L. McDonald, and where Mac and I were posted to 106 Squadron. However, my stay with 83 Squadron was a token introduction to operational flying. Four other observers from the original nine course observers were posted with me, lost their lives during my short stay there. Ken Williams was shot down mine laying in the North Sea. Ralph Warren aircraft flew into the Irish Sea during a cross-country exercise, whilst Ken Ridley and Fenton Nullmeadow were lost over enemy terror. In part two, coming up of this series, Neil will talk about Australian air crew on RAF stations, 83 Squadron on Lancaster Bombers, 106 Squadron, and operations over Europe in Lancaster Bombers. Lindsay gives an account of flying with Wing Commander Guy Gibson, VC, DSO and Bar, DFC and Bar. Guy Gibson, of course, was best known in connection with the famous Dambusters. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.